It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to begin by mentioning something that occurred in Riyadh's talk, which had to do with Ibn Arabi's argument with the philosophers that contradictions could come together. And in the course of that, Ibn Arabi cited love as a place that contradictions could come together. And he gave the example of someone who sees his loved one with somebody else, saying at the same time, pleasure and pain are coming together. The philosophers argued back that, well, pleasure is in regard to one thing and the pain is in regard to another, so they're not coming together in the way Aristotle meant in all ways at the same time. I think that might be true for that particular case. But my talk here will focus on my belief that love poetry itself embodies the language of perplexity that Ibn Arabi was talking about and that Riyadh brought to us so lucidly. And I'd like to talk about then love poetry as the just metaphysics that Ibn Arabi was talking about in connection with his own most famous love poems from the translator of Desires, the Turjaman al-Ashwak. The infinite cannot be put into language or names because any name, according to Ibn Arabi, delimits it causes a taqyid or a, a boundary around that which it names. The very act of naming something, even if we call it the unlimited, because of our conditioning through language, causes us to conceive of it in contrast to something else, and that causes us to put it in a category of its own and mark it off from somewhere where it is not. So the problem then is how can we refer to the unlimited? And even in raising the question, I've had to use the word the unlimited. So when certain writers like Ibn Arabi or Plotinus or Meister Eckhart engage this issue, they often find that they can't even ask the question, how can we refer to the unlimited, without already making the language mistake that they wish to criticize. Indeed, this language mistake for this kind of writer is... Well, we're dealing in these grand claims, so the philosophers say that to violate the law of non-contradiction would destroy all of philosophy and is execrable and abominable, etc. And Ibn Arbi believed that if we use rationalistic logic, it would destroy revelation. For this kind of writer, this subtle mistake insinuates itself into human language, human society, in very, very destructive ways when, despite what we profess openly, when our language leads us to bind infinite reality into an image or form, what Ibn Arabi calls the form of our belief, by definition, it excludes that reality from other forms, the forms of other people's beliefs. This critique of what Ibn Arabi calls the gods of belief is, of course, uh, a major theme in the Fusus al-Hikam, especially the chapter of Noah and the chapter of Shu'aib. In connection with our topic, after the end of the Cold War, it's become clear that various religious traditions, which have never found a way of really recognizing the religious other very well, are now confronted with uh, this situation in a particularly harsh manner 
because the Cold War, for all its violence, mediated violence through a geopolitical axis. And now that that geopolitical axis is gone, we're seeing religious traditions becoming the conduit for various forms of political and social violence. So that Ibn Arabi's critique of what one might call reification, the subtle way that our language makes into absolute reality or the unlimited a thing, an entity that we can possess, what Ibn Arabi might call an intellectual idol, and therefore leads us to a form of unbelief, the denying of the one reality when it appears in other forms, in other beliefs, and the consequent polemic and often actual warfare that that leads to itself is something that these kind of writers see based upon that simple little mistake in language that might seem hair-splitting, but which they see as acting continually on our minds, on our intellects, on our imaginations. It doesn't do any good to say you can't name the unlimited, because to say you can't name the unlimited, I had to name it the unlimited in order to deny that I couldn't name it the unlimited. So what happens in this kind of writer is that any statement that is made ultimately will have to be put into tension with another statement. Any single statement by itself about the unlimited will reify it, will bind it. Ibn Arbi refers to this continually. If you say it is transcendent, you bind it. If you say it is imminent, you limit it. If you say it is transcendent and imminent, you hit the mark. Transcendent being utterly beyond the world, being utterly beyond our minds, being utterly beyond us in whatever way. Imminence being within us, being part of us, being us ourselves, by Aristotelian logical categories, contradictories. But this kind of language is not simply opposing of contradictions, of saying uh, God is beyond us and God is within us, God is near and God is far, God is the first and God is the last. But it is a language in which the wheel of change is always turning. The classical Greek mystics called it apophasis, speaking away from. And the idea is that language has two hands, if I can borrow Ibn Arabi's meditation on the two hands of God. Language has two hands. One hand is the positive hand that posits something. It's the hand of forms. It's the hand of descriptions. It's the hand of values. It's the hand of hierarchy. The other hand is the hand that attempts to take away the delimitation from what the first hand has posited. The first hand is called cataphasis, speaking with. The second hand is called apophasis, speaking away from. I call it in one of my books the language of unsaying. That is, unsaying includes itself within itself a saying. So there is no purely negative language. In Ibn Arba we find uh, definitions, we find very careful hierarchies of value, we find discussions of the form of different kinds of belief. All of these things are upheld, but then continuously the second hand comes in to avoid the freezing of that affirmation into a delimitation, into an intellectual idol. Because of the habits of our mind, language always tends to think of a sentence or a statement as complete in itself. So 
if we say God is transcendent and then we say God is imminent, the habits of our mind are to think that God is in the world. But that is not what Ibn Arabi is saying. He says the truth lies in the tension of the two coming together. Either one statement by itself is not only false, it's meaningless in relationship to the deity because it is a delimitation in itself. So instead of two truths, God is beyond, God is within, the truth is within those truths. As Riyadh said, it is the very uniting of those two contradictories. But because of the way language works, in order to keep us from positing as real one of those propositions or both of them on their own, we have to continuously move the language against ourselves. So in Ibn Arabi you get this extraordinary flow, continuous movement that really never stops. There's always a turning. There's no simple positing of some kind of entity that can be described. This language of apophasis then is what grounds the notion in Ibn Arabi of the heart that is open to every form. As uh, Ibn Arabi says, quoting the Quran from the Surah of the Compassionate, in every moment he, that is uh, for Ibn Arabi, uh, al-haq, reality, is in a different condition, then in every moment the human heart should be in a different condition to be able to receive that form. The statement he makes, I think, is quite strong in Journey to the Lord of Power, is that everybody has a moment. A moment is the moment when the heart is receptive to the real. Some people don't ever have a moment. Maybe he's thinking of Averroes and those guys, I don't know. Some people never have a moment. Some people have a moment once in a lifetime, and they hold on to that reality, which is a valid reality, and they seize it with possessiveness and never allow themselves to be open to any new reality. And by doing so, they end up with the empty husk of the reality that was once there because the uh, real is always changing and they're losing the new manifestations. Those who have a moment every year lose the months. Those who have a moment every month lose the days. Those who have a moment every day lose the minutes. Those who have a moment every minute lose the breaths. And in Ibn Arabi, the ideal is to achieve passing away from our ego self, our intellect, our aql, our will, being completely receptive achieving the form, and then in the next breath, giving that form up and achieving a new form. As a result, the deity or al-haq, reality, is never described in Ibn Arabi. There's a kind of linguistic aura or spinning around it, maybe a linguistic dance around uh, something, pointers in a direction, but never any solid description. And through this, I believe that Ibn Arabi attempts to help the reader achieve this kind of heart that is open to every form. I call what happens in reading Ibn al-Arabi a meaning event. That is, it's not that he explains to us what happens in a mystical experience, because that is indescribable. But through the language, by bringing together subject and object at certain times, by bringing together the human and the divine in powerful linguistic ways, as an act of reading, we feel a certain moment where our normal categories of dualisms and bindings are broken and there's a kind of moment of openness. And as soon as we say, ah, I've got it, of course then we've lost it because it's become an it and we're, we're possessing it. But so the, the I got it moment is always the moment after this moment of openness has occurred. Now, I'd like to shift radically, what seems like radically, to the love poetry tradition of the Arabic and Islamic world. 
out of which the interpreter of desire came. I'd like to first tell a story, a double story. I had a fellowship last year to travel from Morocco to Tunisia to Syria, following the traces of Ibn al-Arabi, and talking to people about him, looking at manuscripts, visiting shrines, and doing whatever seemed right at the time, which is a very generous fellowship for which I thank the United States government. (laughs) Perhaps at least as worthy a project as building another B-2 bomber. (laughs) Absolutely much cheaper. At the end of this adventure, I ended up in Damascus, and the book I'm going to be talking about and reading from today, which has just come out called Stations of Desire, was in press. And I was talking to Riyadh, who was kind of my guide in many ways to Damascus, and we were talking about the famous story that Ibn Arabi tells in his preface to The Interpreter of Desires. So I'd like to recount the story. He says that one day he was circumambulating the Kaaba, And he was reciting a love poem. And as he was reciting the love poem, that he would draw a little to the side because he wanted to be completely by himself because it was a very intimate love poem. And the poem that he recited is the first poem of his famous volume, The Interpreter of Desires or The Translator of Desires. And I'll read my translation of it here. I wish I knew if they knew whose heart they have taken or my heart knew which high ridge track they follow. Do you picture them safe, or do you picture them perished? The lords of love in love are ensnared, bewildered. Ibn Arabi says that as he was reciting this poem, a young woman appeared. Actually, he felt a hand, a cool hand on his back clearly a reference to Muhammad feeling the cool hand of prophecy on his back. He felt a cool hand on his back, and he turned around to find a young woman who proceeded to rip his poem to shreds. She said, Sir, I know that you're the great scholar of the age and the Sheikh al-Akbar, etc., but I have certain questions about your poem. She gave a devastating critique of line one, which he recounts, then of line two, then of line three. When it gets to the part about the lords of love being ensnared and bewildered, she says the following. Amazing! How could it be that one pierced through the heart by love had any remainder of self left to be bewildered? Love's character is to be all-consuming. It numbs the senses, drives away intellect, astonishes thoughts, and sends off the one in love with the others who are gone. Where is bewilderment, and who is left to be bewildered? Of course, this bewilderment is higher, the perplexity that we've been talking about. When I got to Damascus, I was talking about this with Riyadh, and he was doing his work on perplexity. I said, isn't that a great story about Nizam meeting Ibn Arabi at the Kaaba and, and giving him this speech about bewilderment? And Riyadh said, well, she's not called Nizam there. All the modern scholars have assumed that the woman who appeared at the Kaaba is Nizam, the woman that Ibn Arabi talks about in its preface, to whom he's dedicated the volume, and whom he praises for both her beauty and her eloquence and her wisdom. 
And I said, well, you know, Riyadh, on some level, I think it has to be Nizam. It, it doesn't seem to be part of the adab or basic uh, sensibility of Arabic poetry to have one lover helping you write more burning love poems to another lover. So on some level, perhaps it is Nizam. But the fact that she is not named Nizam was important. And I thought, well, that's too bad. The book's in press. And, you know, I just went along with what everybody had written, Clota Das, Maurice Cloton, Nicholson. Everybody just assumed this was Nizam. And I still think it's not different than Nizam, but it's not the same as Nizam. It's both different and the same. It's perplexity. And perplexity can't be one or the other. So I thought it would have been nice to have left that open. I got back to the United States, and I had a email from the publisher saying, I'm really sorry the book has been delayed. There was a printing problem. And then I'm not sure about this diacritical dot under the name of the poet El-Bukhtari. And I blessed El-Bukhtari. I blessed his missing diacritical dot. And I wrote back saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to make this change. He said, no problem. And so the young woman at the Kaaba remains unnamed. <laughs> Ibn Arabi does use the epithet, or she used the epithet, Kurat al-Ain, the cooling of the eye, which is what happens when someone gazes at beauty in Arabic. They're said, their eye is said to be cooled. I actually started translating these poems about 20 years ago. They came into a kind of first rough draft at Chisholm several years ago when we were, um, some of us were there together at a seminar. The last time I was here, they were coming together a little bit more. As I was working through the poems, uh, many people asked about the commentary. After Ibn Arbi published the poems, of course it raised questions because the poems themselves read as love poems. So he got criticized by, we might call them the binders, who said, what are you doing writing love poems? And he said, well, you don't really understand these love poems. It's not like they're sensual or anything. Here's a commentary. And he wrote his very fine commentary on the poems. His commentary brings out kind of Ibn Arabi's spiritual system, the various aspects of his thought, in many ways, in a very, very fine way. But there are really two books. There's the Turjaman al-Ashwak, which is the book of poems. And then there's the book he wrote in response to the criticism, which is called the Khair al-Alaq, which is a commentary in which the poems are interspersed into the commentary. And those are two separate works. The second work would require a completely different kind of thinking, and I decided just to do the first work, just the poems. And... I became convinced in doing this that Ibn Arabi wrote the poems as poems and he didn't write the commentary at first and that that is a work in itself. So we need to ask ourselves, why is it valuable in itself? It's clearly valuable in its immersion in the uh, commentary, but why is it valuable in itself? I'll be reading some of these poems and asking this question. Let me start out with one from a little further down in the book and ask this question. This is called In Gowns of Darkness. He's always having these love affairs at the Kaaba here, and this is another example. In Gowns of Darkness. As I touched the stone, I was jostled by ladies circling the Kaaba with veiled faces. They lowered their veils, revealing the sun in glory. They warned me, death is in the gaze. We've left many men dead, 
at Muhasa bin Mina, where they cast stones and make the sacrifice. Souls come questing to the mound of stones in the courtyard of the Wadi, on the high ridge monuments of Rama and Jum, among the crowd that throngs the Arafat plain. Don't you see beauty plunders a heart that is pure? Beauty, virtue's spoiler, aptly named. Meet us at the Zumzum Spring after the circumambulation, near the middle tent, near the boulders. There, a man thinned away by the trance of love is cured by the scent of the women that made him yearn. When disquieted, they loosen their hair and let it fall, enfolding themselves in gowns of darkness. A man thinned away by the trance of love is cured by the scent of the women that made him yearn. The same scent that is his illness is his cure. This goes all the way back to pre-Islamic Arabic love poetry. She is the cure. She is the disease. And one sees these coming together of contradictions in the experience of love continually. And one sees that the experience of perplexity, Hira, is the basic heart of the love poem in the Arabic and, of course, the other similar traditions, the Persian and the Urdu and the Turkic and the Hebrew poetry that was composed in the Golden Age. Perplexity, astonishment, bewilderment, the notion that it is impossible to ever possess the object of desire. And in that sense, the object of desire never can be objectified as an object of desire. When the earliest Arabic poems, the pre-Islamic mu'alaqat, were composed, you have these incredibly beautiful and sensuous opening sections that are always often called the description of the beloved. And when I was working on this Arabic poetry, I fell in love with the poetry, and I was wondering, well, what is really going on here? Let me read just one from a famous poet that was actually recited to Muhammad at a very famous moment in Islamic history at the very beginning. This is the, from the poem of Kaab ibn Zuhair, which was recited to Muhammad, and then after he recited it, Muhammad gave him his cloak, and so it's called the Burda poem or the cloak poem. The beloved's name is Suad. Suad is gone, my heart stunned, lost in her traces, shackled, unransomed, what was Suad, the morning they went away, but a faint song, languor in the eyes, Kohol, revealing as she smiled, side teeth wet, as a first draught of wine or a second, mixed with the cold, hard cold of a winding back-sloped gorge-bottom stream, pure, cooled in the morning by the north wind, filtered through the winds, then flooded with rains of a night traveler, flowing white and over. Misery she, who might have been a friend had she kept her promise, had a well-meant word been taken. Some friend, in her blood brew trouble and lies, the withdrawal of vows, the trade-in of lovers, 
From form to form, she turns and changes like a ghoul slipping through her guises. She makes a vow, then holds it like a linen sieve holds water. Now, sometimes my students say, gee, this is not very nice to his beloved. You know, he's calling her a ghoul and all this kind of thing. I say, well, look at any love song today. Any love song. I call it the lover's polemic. The one who's lost his loved one is always saying these things. He's always blaming her. He's always saying mean things. My favorite is the song that has for a refrain, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, baby, you're no good. That kind of condenses it all down. Normally they kind of go on in a more tenuous fashion. But of course the pathos is that if the lover had really believed any of that stuff inside, the lover wouldn't be singing a song about the beloved. And, and we always have these statements in, in Arabic poetry that, I've forgotten you, look how well I've forgotten you. Often whole poems about how well he's forgotten the beloved, addressed to the beloved. Now, the suad, when we look at this, it's called the description of the beloved. I've studied these poems, I've translated them. I'm not great with faces and names, but I know that if I saw Layla and Suad and Nawar and all the great beloveds of these poems, when they walked in this room, we were talking about what would you do if Adam walked in the room? What would you do if Suad walked in the room? You know, I'd certainly be blown away, but I wouldn't know if she was Layla or Nawar or whichever one she was. There's no possible dis- way that you can say that there's any description that, that reveals these uh, loved ones as objects. You might have a reference to the mouth, just to kind of extemporize. One might say, when she opened her mouth and you saw her side teeth gleaming, was like the flash of lightning on a dark night when you've been without rain for a million years. And the taste of her mouth was like wine imported from distant Persia, an ancient vintage kept in a sealed jug, kept underground for 500 movements of the sun across the spaces of the cosmic reaches, cooled in the back-sloped dream uh, as the water bubbles up, wine as strong as an elixir that can seep through the bones of the body and turn matter into spirit and, and lead into gold. And after about 40 verses, one say, I still don't know anything about what noir looks like. <laughs> What happens, I think, is that in almost every case, there's what I would call a semantic overflow. That is, the effort to describe or depict the beloved always overruns itself. And it always overruns itself into a chain of associations that end up not describing the beloved, but they usually end up describing something that is, I think, the symbolic analog of the beloved. They end up with a description of water, fertility, animals at peace giving birth, lush vegetation, all the things that are the opposite of the desert scene in which these early poems take place, the wasteland, all of a sudden they end up with a depiction of the lost garden. So I call this the dissembling simile. That is, the two hands of the poem, the one hand moves toward describing something and the other hand moves it toward an association. An association so powerful we're convinced that, you know, this is a description, but if we look at it, it's a description not of the beloved because the beloved can never be grasped or kept in language just as the lover can never grasp or keep the beloved because she's always changing form from form to form like a ghoul slipping through her guises. 
Now, if we take the rule out, always changing from form to form, that's what Ibn Arabi says about the divine beloved. In every moment, the divine is in a different form, and the human being should be able to have the heart that's receptive of every form, to be able then to have the form or the manifestation in every moment. The result, I think, is that love poetry itself is a kind of exercise in apophosis of its own. It has the same effect in its own domain as what we might call apophatic mystical philosophical language. It forces us into the same kinds of bringing together of contradictions. It puts us into an infinity of linguistic creativity that can never arrive at possessing or grasping that which it is desirous of. So that in, in a sense, I call it the infinity of desire, the, the language itself, through the impossibility of referring or describing, actually is the closest thing that human beings come to what infinity is. Infinity is trying to describe suad. That's infinity. You go out and you can talk for a million lifetimes and you never get close. Infinity is trying to embrace El-Haq reality in language. Ibn Arabi wrote 250 books, one of which is coming out in 36 volumes, inshallah, in a new edition. And he was still happily and effervescently moving from form to form. What lyric poetry and what apophatic mysticism offer, I think, is a radical critique of essentialism. Essentialism would be the notion that that we can define, I as a lover or I as a philosopher, can define the essence of something and can tell you what that is. And by so doing so, I can possess it intellectually or possess it through my thought or through my language. Essentialism occurs in various kinds. There's the theological essentialism that Ibn Arabi critiques about thinking that one can wrap God up in the binding of our own human constructs and language. There is what I would call ethno-religious essentialism, the notion that, for example, it was so destructive when genocide was occurring in Bosnia and people kept saying, oh, that's the way those people are. Uh, They've been like that forever. That's their essence, to kill one another. All these statements that implied or imputed an essence to people, whether they were Serbs or Bosnian Muslims or Croats, which in fact historically has been proven incorrect, but often the repeated statement of it can lead people to believe it. And in fact, that's what the nationalists were doing in their propaganda, saying our essence is that we cannot live with those folks. Their essence is they cannot live with us. That was what Milosevic and Tuchman did for years to provoke these and to train people to be willing to kill their neighbor. Then there's gender essentialism. Males are this way, female is that way. Of course, gender is a stronger category in the sense that it is related to a biological fact, but it always is reinforced through societal constructions about how that is to be interpreted and what it means. There is linguistic essentialism, the notion that one can know a language and that languages are discrete entities with their own essences. 
sometimes people ask how many languages do you know and of course I know no languages I know little pieces of French and little pieces of Arabic and a little piece of English I couldn't read Chaucer where someone in Cairo who might be studying Chaucer at the University of Cairo could read Chaucer very well I can read some pre-Islamic poems where many people in Cairo wouldn't read so none of us really know a language we have little pieces of a language but the notion I think that people know languages is an essentialism that is quite strong. There is genre essentialism. I was talking about this with Marty. Poetry is poetry. Philosophy is philosophy. They can't ever meet. The critique of essentialism doesn't deny the form. It doesn't say, well, Croats have a culture and a history and we can appreciate it and it's certainly different. It's not the same as the history and and culture of Serbs or Bosnian Muslims, it doesn't deny the form, but it refuses to absolutize it, to freeze it into an unchanging, delimited reality that can be possessed. Now, I'd like to make a cosmic statement. Um, Everybody should make a few in their life. Existence is translation. If the... If reality, al-haq, is constantly moving from form to form, and in every moment reveals herself or itself or himself in a different form, and if the goal to be truly human is to be able to be receptive to that form in every moment, then it is the movement from form to form which is the actual place where reality is found. And that's why for the philosophers, movement was negative, because that's where the contradictions could come together. But for Ibn Arabi and the lovers, contradictions come together precisely that moment that is their love. And so it is the movement from form to form which is the divine self-manifestation. Similarly, meaning is the movement from form to form. Translation is sometimes viewed as a kind of mechanical thing where you take a text and you look up a word and you put a word for word. Anybody that's tried to translate knows that that's not true. There are all kinds of impossibilities, words that don't match anything in the other language. And But I would even go further and say we're always translating. We say we're talking in English, but we each have our own kind of private sense sometimes of what a word means. Sometimes we'll get into a big discussion with someone we'll realize, oh, you were using the word in this sense, I was using it in that. That discussion is a translation. And when we successfully see that difference and recognize it, we're translating with one another. So for Ibn Arabi, Turjuman, the translator guide of desires, was a kind of perfect, I think, emblem, not only for his a title for his book, but I believe for the actual existence, that is, the coming into being of reality to use that beautiful image someone mentioned of Gabriel walking around and every time he he took a step, life would sprout up. To me, translation is that movement, movement to movement. The original word translation in English comes from Latin and the original meaning of translatio was the movement of the relics of a saint from one shrine to another shrine. When the relics of the saint got to the second shrine, then that shrine became alive as a shrine. Until that, it had no sacrality. So translation is the movement of the sacred from moment to moment, from form to form, from space to space.
Now I'd like to read a couple more poems and just kind of meditate on them in view of this, these thoughts and then end with a thought about our topic about the millennium, which I'd like to talk about, although I really did appreciate hearing what this year is in all those different other calendars as well. And I hope that those calendars remain with us as well. This is called Grief Was Between Us. The ring-necked dove cooed, a sad man yearned, disquieted by the echo of her longing. At the sound of her desire, eyes welled, sudden as underground springs bursting. She mourned her only one. I responded, loss is the loss of your one and only. I called back a cry, but grief was between us. I revealed myself. She stayed hidden. I felt love's sting on the sands of Alij, white tents along the slopes, the large of eyes, an epithet for the Doorix, a kind of symbol of beauty, gaze languid, glances fatal, eyelids sheaths of swords that glisten. I choked back tears from what was hurting me, hiding my love from the blame monger, acting well. Until the crow cawed, time to leave, time for separation, and exposed the love run wild of a man who grieves. The riders reached, cutting the nose rings of their camels, red roans beneath the saddle, moaning, yearning. Before my eyes, I saw the cords of fated death as they loosened the reins and cinched the strap of the saddle. In the fever of love, separation kills. Finding her would ease the burning. No one blames me, wanting her. I love her. Beauty, wherever she turns. This one is called God Curse My Love. I gave titles to these poems because, of course, in the Arabic, people remember them by their rhyme words. And for those not versed in Arabic that we need something to uh, kind of recognize them by. Oh, you who drive the red roans. Uh, Ibn Arbi used these terms, red roans, aïs. And, of course, he loves to play on Isa and Isa that are both mentioned in the poems. The red roan camel is one of the many thousands of epithets for the camel, but also the name of Jesus. Oh, you who drive the red roans, don't drive them further. Pause. I drag myself along after, falling behind. Rain the camels in, loose the bridles, by God, by the trance of desires, by what hurts so bad, driver. Now this is written in a kind of hyper-emotional language with a certain amount of self-satire. And the publisher said, well, do you really want to use what hurts so bad? It's a little ungrammatical. And I said, well, Ibn Arby's pushing the limits here, too. And what can we come across in English that would get this kind of sense? And I tried hundreds of different versions of this line, and it's the only one that seemed reasonable to me. My soul wants what my limbs can't bear. Who can offer me some support, some consolation? When the craftsman skilled in his trade finds his tools fail him, what can he fashion? Turn aside. Their tents are in the wadi on the right slope. God bless you for what you hold, Wadi. You embrace a people who are my soul, my breath, the darkest dark of the membrane of my liver. God curse my love if I don't die grieving at Hajar or Sal or Najadi. So here I think 
on some level he sounds like he's responding to the young lady at the Kaaba. There's something left of you to feel bewildered that you're no real lover. A lover is completely wasted. There's nothing left. God curse my love if I don't die grieving. Why does not Ibn Arbi in these poems, why did not Hafiz in so many poems, why did not the great Ottoman Ghazal writers that are so beautifully brought across in the book Ottoman Love Lyric, translated by Walter Feldman and Najat Black, why did they not define the love? Why didn't they not say, oh, I'm talking about human love here, I'm talking about divine love there? My view is that that would be a delimitation itself, that to even ask the question would be a certain violation of adab. First of all, you would never ask what someone's lover is in adab. But secondly, it's a violation of the logic of the infinity. If the love is infinite, it is both here and there. One can't say, oh, this is the love I'm talking about is the love here. I'm not talking about the love there. So that the reason I think that many of the most beloved love poems of the Islamic world are those that ride that line so beautifully and that have generated a thousand years of fierce argument on both sides about whether the beloved is an earthly beloved or not an earthly beloved are those that are engaging in a kind of poetic apophosis themselves. And by raising that question in us and then saying, love exceeds all boundaries, don't put one here. It allows us to, again, have that moment of perplexity. It doesn't define the beloved as one or the other. It refuses to define the beloved or to grasp the beloved. I'd like to close by a couple thoughts I had. We were talking about how the global culture uh, now is something we're all dealing with. It affects us. It affects everybody in the world. Many cultures have been radically changed by it within a few years. That intrusiveness, which is so powerful and in many ways irresistible, has caused a backlash, so you get anti-Western movements that are really anti-movement that really I can't give it a name to. I don't think global capitalism quite does its justice. It's more than that. But whatever it is, it's moving at the speed of light. It's homogenizing cultures. One sees the same advertisement in Damascus as one sees in New York City as one sees in Paris. And those things are affecting people's minds and thoughts in powerful ways. The... uh, sad part is that we see both a homogenization on the one hand, the world is becoming homogenized into this thing, a reaction against that which leads to polarization. The ideologues of both East and West, and especially now focused in the Islamic world and the stereotypes about Muslims in this world and the stereotypes of being authored by certain uh, Islamic states against the West in their world, and fragmentation of small Wars, even genocidal wars occurring all over the place between one group and another. That tragic element, we need to think, what is the positive analog to that? And I would say, instead of a homogenization, it would be unity without essentialism. A unity that allows for the constant movement of form to form and affirms those forms even as the unity is left undefined, so that undefined unity that is non-essentialized can never take over those forms because it is not a form itself that can dominate other forms. Love poetry, I believe, is something that the world desperately needs, just as it desperately needs the thought of Ibn al-Arabi, who is both a great love poet 
and a great Sufi mystic and thinker. We had a conference a few uh, months ago at Washington University called Translation in the Islamic World, and we all gave papers on Ottoman lyric and Persian lyric and Arabic lyric. And Then later on, we all got together, and people read poems in the original and in translation. And it transformed the whole conference. And the conference was good before. It was really good, but it was a different reality after people got together and, as I say, all got naked with each other by reading their poems. After that, defenses were down. People were freer to say what they really felt. And yet poetry is marginal in our world in the United States. It's something that is so central to the worlds of Islam and so central to Ibn Arabi that I think the effort to find a place for it and a home for it is something we can do to try to bring across the notion of what I would like to end with, a non-essentialized humanity, a humanity that can affirm humanity without affirming a human essence. Because once a human essence is affirmed, then everybody can, usually not in a crude way, usually with the best of intentions, try to impose that essence on other people as, well, this is really the common human essence, so let's do this. And people say, no, that's really your common human essence. That ain't my common human essence. So if there's no essence, and then I think humanity can be affirmed in a non-essential way. And the infinite conversation and the infinite love poem then will be allowed more voice, and that voice will in turn reinforce the notion of some kind of non-essential humanity. Now I realize this is not a political program. I can only think that it might have the kind of force that water has in the Tao Te Ching, which is the weakest of all elements, but is always flowing suddenly and silently and creeps and cannot be stopped ultimately from getting to where it's going. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.